Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green, and I'm the host of the show. And we are at the very first Sunday of Lent, and it seems like a million years. I remember, actually, it was a year ago, well, liturgically, it was a year ago when we had our last, actually, live group gathering at the house. And um, it's been a long time. We did a, a, a service on Ash Wednesday, and, and we had some friends here and then some on Zoom and a little bit of everything going on. This week has been a little bit nuts, to say the least. We've had these crazy weather all across the United States, and particularly down in Texas and other places, but they really got hit hard, and, and the power grid was down partially, and people without power for days at a time. I had good friends down there who had to go through a lot of that. It was a really tough week for them, and uh, you know, it's one of those things where you wish you could do something, but there's not a thing in the world you can do. You can't get there, and they can't come here because of the weather, so it was a tough time. It made me remember way back to 1993 when we had a huge snowstorm when I was living in Knoxville and Suzanne was gone. She was in Russia with Will and my mother. Will was like six months old. And uh, my mother and her business partner at the time. And then um, our oldest, Pelham, was at his grandparents' house. And we were expecting a little bit of snow. And suddenly we ended up with about 18 or 19 inches in Knoxville. And it was a mess. I couldn't get out of the house. We didn't have any power. Couldn't get to the main road. It was about five days before we got power and fortunately i had you know a gas um uh, oven not an oven sorry a, a grill and then we had um a fireplace and i had plenty of wood for it and i had a bunch of kerosene and so me and the three dogs that we had at the time <clears throat> kind of huddled up and stayed as warm as we could and then finally my brother-in-law was able to get to the highway and me and the dogs they bounded through the snow and i walked up there and, and finally got over to my in-laws house and stayed with them they had had power the whole time but it was man it was a rough several days of being there certainly the only time i've ever had that happen in my life and so i can sympathize with them at some level although i was by myself instead of with suzanne and and three kids in their case and so you know i'm glad that this thing ended and they're all all right, but I know that everybody's not, and so we need to keep that all in your prayers and um, as they you know, sort out all the stuff and all the problems down in Texas with the energy grid. So anyway, been kind of a crazy week. Um, not a whole lot going on, though. We, we've not been going out and hiking lately, and I'm missing it. It's time to get back out, but it's been so cold, and then it would it would snow or whatever, and so we just haven't been able to get out, and, and it's time to get out and start you know, having more life at least. So anyway, here we are, the first Sunday of Lent, and we've got, you know, all kinds of stuff to deal with here. It's We're going to be talking about covenant at least the next couple of weeks. There's different forms of covenant we're going to be dealing with. And some of it, um, it's all in the Old Testament, but also it, it obviously goes into the New Testament. And, and if you listen to the daily podcast this week, you're going to hear um, some things that, that relate to this week's lessons, uh, particularly this, the it's the first Sunday of Lent. We always deal with after Jesus's baptism and he's driven out into the wilderness, where he is um, fasting for forty days. And as I'll say in the in the podcast, in the daily podcast, you'll hear me say at least once that the um, there's only 
uh, two other people who actually that we know of in scriptures that were told specifically did 40-day fast, and that's Moses who did it twice. And it seems that he did it back-to-back, to be honest with you. Um, so we've got Moses, because he fasted when he went up on the mountain the first time and got the uh, com- the the Torah from the Lord. It wasn't just the Ten Commandments. It certainly didn't take 40 days to for God to write the Ten Commandments. So there was a lot more that he gave him when he was up on the mountain. He gave him everything. And then um, he came back down, remember, because of the episode of the golden calf. And then he says in Deuteronomy, he says that he, that after he came down, smashed the tablets and fussed at the people, that he went back up, he lay prostrate before the Lord for 40 days. And in those 40 days, he said he didn't eat or drink. So it seemed like he did them maybe back to back. And then the other person who we know that did a 40-day fast like that was Elijah, who goes leaves the country, essentially leaves the um, the land after uh, Jezebel threatens to kill him. And, and God sustains him, sends an angel to give him food while he's lying under the broom tree, and then tells him to go on. And he goes on, and he spends 40 days out there in the cave until... Uh, the Lord shows up. So the, Jesus is one of three, and so kind of, you know, reflecting back to last week, thinking about the transfiguration, you see, you know, the, the importance of these three. But we'll get to this fast in a, in a minute, but first, what we're going to start with, I'm going to start with a Genesis lesson. And so what we've got is Genesis 9, 8 to 17, and there'll be a link down in the description, but I'm going to go ahead and read it anyway. So then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, this is in Genesis 9, this is after they've come out of the ark. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that's with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it's for every beast of the earth. It's fascinating how much that comes up in this particular passage, and and I don't think I've ever really paid too much attention to it before, but as we go through this, listen to how often that, that we hear that this covenant is far broader than just with Noah and, and his. It is literally with everything on the earth. They're all flesh on the earth, every living creature of all flesh, and it just goes on and on and on. And so, so there's a, it's, a, it's a very, very broad covenant. It's um, with creation, with, with beings that, um, that have a spirit, if you go back to the first part of Genesis, that's exactly what you're going to hear. There's there's something different about man because God breathes the breath of life into him and creates him in his own image. But but look at the uh, chapter two actually of Genesis where you're going to see all that. But but God is it cares for all these beasts, all these things with a a spirit, and. You'll see that, you know, if you listen to the podcast from Ash Wednesday, you'll see the very same thing. Because what you see there in Nineveh is is that the beasts, um, the, the herds, the flocks, all that kind of stuff, participate in the fast. And then at the end, remember, God says there's 150,000 people there who don't know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. And so, so God continues throughout Scripture to care for other things besides us. Now, there's one thing to make this covenant with everything on earth that breathes. There's a different sort of thing in the rest of the covenants. Those are two different things. But but it should give us some pause when we think about the um, the animals around us and the way that we treat those. Um, it, it's it's an interesting thought. But but he, God's very clear. The birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you. 
I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the whole earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I make between me and you and every living creature that's with you for all future generations. So it wasn't just that God didn't want to start all over creating beasts and uh, creatures. He cared for what he had already created enough to do that. And that's one of the things I think that we need to get accustomed to thinking about whenever we read the book of the Revelation – you know, it, we tend to be focused completely on human beings. And I, if I read some of the Left Behind series until it just got to be incredibly tedious and, and you'd get like one and a half days in a whole book. And it was like, well, you're just milking it now. But one of the things that I think we don't think about too clearly is creation whenever we read the book of the Revelation because here we see the flood coming and destroying the earth and we believe honestly that there was a different environment in the earth prior to this because it seems that it had never rained a mist came up from the earth and watered the ground prior to that and so we we believe that honestly the environment completely changed after this and and some of history will tell you that that when the dinosaurs for instance were wiped out it was a it was something that would have changed the atmosphere from the way things were before that. And, and so it would be a much more oxygen-rich environment prior to that and then other things as well. And, and so certain living creatures were cut off then and then the flood cuts them off and, and we have sort of a new creation. And you see some of that in the fossil record because we go from simple um, organisms to, to actually species and, and animals and things like that in the fossil record without a transition. And, and so here... God makes this covenant with the living creatures, but in Revelation, what you see is God destroying His His good creation. The stars falling from the sky, the all kinds of horrible sorts of things, apocalyptic stuff that happens to God's creation in the heavens and on the earth, and it's it's devastating. And if you try and remember when you're reading that, every time you come into contact with something where creation is is exploding or whatever, then think about, yeah, God loved this creation that much and enough to make this covenant in the beginning uh, with Noah and all creation and to see God destroy his good creation in order to get man's attention. And then ultimately a new creation comes down out of heaven. And, and so, but God is, he cares deeply about what he created, loves it. Um, how bad must it have been for him to bring that kind of judgment on the earth in the time of Noah, especially when you look around at some of the craziness that we live in now? I mean, we can't get much more violent. We can't get much more confused. Um, it's just that we, we don't know who we are or what we are. I'm not even sure what kind of species we are some days. I mean, it's just there's so much there now and, and, and so many things that grieve us. You can just imagine how God feels about those things. And so he says here that, that the sign of the covenant is, he said, I've set my bow in the clouds. And, and yeah, we're talking about the rainbow, but what that word actually is, it, it's a battle bow that God's put in the clouds. So he's not going to be at war with humanity. <clears throat> It'll be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I'll remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. What's happened here, think about it, is, is that it's, it's, a, it's a new creation 
like we're going to see in Revelation 21. But this is a new creation, very much like the old creation, because remember that that water covered the earth before God began the work of creation, separating um, the water from the earth, and the waters would recede, and now there's dry land, and then you change, he changes the atmosphere and places the lights in the heavens and all that. And so here we are, we're coming back to a new creation, and we're coming back to there's more people than there was in the beginning. It's not just Adam and Eve. It's, it's um, Noah and his wife and his children and their wives. So there's eight of them who are coming off the ark here. But, but they're starting all over again, but it's, but it's a fallen creation now. It's not the same. Um, the, the relationship even between man and the, and the beasts of the field and the, the other creatures is changed. Before that, they'd been vegetarian, and now they're given to eat flesh. And so there's a different, a completely different environment that will that will be the way they live. I mean, their relationship to animals, there's going to be a fear and a dread among the animals for man now, and, and there's this adversarial relationship. And so we, we're watching the extension of the fall that begins in Genesis 3, get you know further and further apart we're getting separated from one another separated from from everything else in creation and it's because of our sin that brought all this on and so god says when the bow is in the clouds i'll see it and remember the everlasting covenant and every living creature between god and every living creature of all flesh that's on the earth and god said to noah this is the sign of the covenant that i've established between me and all flesh that's on the earth and you've heard me talk in the past, and I'll put a link in the description this week to the what what the Jews speak of as the Noahide covenant, and that is the covenant that that is with everybody but the Jews. The Jews are in a special covenant in their mind, and the rest of us are under the Noahide covenant. And so they have 613 laws. We have seven. So that's the way they understand us vis-a-vis -vis the life of the world to come is, is that we'll participate in that, um, in some way. Uh, not the same as them, though, because they're in a special covenant. We would say, well, that's been done away with in Jesus, and we've all brought in, been brought into that covenant. All who believe have been brought into the new covenant. And that's the reason there's an Old Testament or covenant and the new covenant or testament that we read. And so we've, we've got all of that going on together. And so I, I do wonder how animals participate in the next Life, I've got to believe that they're going to be there, to be honest with you, because the, he created this world in such a way that we would love it. I've got to believe that this original creation is going to be kind of an analog for the next creation as well, because <clears throat> we're going to be perfected humanity. We're not going to be a different thing. We're going to be perfected and sinless. And so I believe that it's a pretty decent analog. We should be able to get a glimpse of what what will be based on what is, except for with the knowledge that all this is fallen. So then, um, and you see a little bit of that here in this next, um, in, the, in the gospel is the reason I'm even mentioning that. We've got Mark 1, 9 to 15. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Those days, is baptized by John in the Jordan. And we've read that, <clears throat> we've read that passage through the, uh, in the first week of, of Epiphany. That's where we always begin. Well, we not the first week because that would be uh, the Magi. But then the next thing is the the revelation at the baptism, and, and so we move forward from there. And but what Mark tells us is when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens torn open and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, "You're my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased." 
which all the Gospels say that. And then, then Mark tells us the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So it's, it's sort of driven out of the garden, driven out of the land during that period of time, and, and he was with the wild animals. It's an interesting phrase and an interesting thought that even Mark even decided to bring that into the idea, but the angels were ministering to him there. And, you know, what does that mean? Because he was fasting for those 40 days. And, and so what does it mean that they were ministering to him there? Now, Mark doesn't give us the details of the, um, of the temptations. We know what they are. Turn that uh, stones into bread and um, throw yourself down off the temple mount and then bow down and worship uh, Satan in order that he would receive all the kingdoms of the earth. So... What does it mean that the angels were ministering to him and he was with the wild animals? And so there's sort of there's an Elijah sort of a feel to that because if you remember when Elijah um, first says there will be no rain, he shuts up the heavens. He goes out when the when the famine comes and because of the drought, he goes out into a wadi, which is a, a dry riverbed, and he's there, but there's water nearby, and the ravens feed him while he's out there. Um, they bring him food and take care of his daily needs and so you get the same sort of a feeling about this that I mean, it's, it doesn't seem an ominous thing that he was with the wild animals he's he's just among them and, and it's an odd detail to bring in so so he's out there and he's being tempted by satan during this period of time and what does that mean and, and does does Satan because satan didn't stop tempting him because the other gospels tell us that he he simply uh, left for a more opportune time. And then he began to sort of tempt him indirectly through other people to choose a different path, to do different things, to not listen to the Father, to sort of strike out on his own and to, to do things the Father had not commanded him to do. And, and we see it through people, chiefly. And that's the reason I believe Jesus wheels on Peter when, when, he, when Jesus is speaking of his death and, and Peter begins to rebuke him and I'm sure what he's saying is Messiah doesn't die. You got this all wrong, and that's not going to happen. And they never came to grips with that during Jesus' life. And as he tells him that, Jesus wheels on him and says, Get behind me, Satan. And I think that's why is that he's tempted to have a crown without a cross, without the suffering. And so we immediately see Jesus begin to suffer here by by being driven out, and he's got to come to terms with a whole lot of things. There could be great temptations if he had stayed where he was, actually, because people hear this. They could have um, wanted, they, you know, at different times they wanted to make him king. And so God, the Spirit of God drives him out into the wilderness right after this really high moment. I mean, he's 30-something years old, and nothing has happened that we're aware of prior to this. And then suddenly... There's a declaration from heaven at his baptism that that all the things that that preceded this story, everything that you read about in Luke, where uh, about the birth of John the Baptist, about the annunciation to Mary, about she's going to bear this child who is the Messiah, all those things, and and the the Simeon and Anna and all those prophetic words that were spoken over him were dormant for all that period of time, and then suddenly. At the baptism, you get the declaration from heaven, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. 
And then the Spirit immediately drives him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And I think sometimes we, we miss that in our own lives. If we, we, we get on these spiritual highs and we, we hit this spot and then, bam, we get hit hard. And we're completely unprepared for it. But, but that's the way it is. Satan doesn't want us to climb higher and closer to God. He wants to make sure we don't get there. And so Jesus is, is dealing with the same temptations we are, and we know how he deals with them. He deals with them with the Word of God. He quotes Deuteronomy to him, to Satan, on multiple occasions. And so <clears throat> then at, after John, the next thing Mark tells about, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. Now that's a great temptation, right? Because now the guy who baptized him, the one who was the forerunner, he's been arrested and he's ultimately going to die. And but Jesus comes in proclaiming the gospel and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is in hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And that's exactly what John's message was. John brought a message of repentance. But Jesus is saying now it's here. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is in hand. So he's announcing what everybody thinks is going to be the messianic age and that he is basically, I mean, not basically, he's clearly saying in himself, that time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And we know that, that when he preaches at the synagogue in Capernaum, he chooses the passage and, and says, this messianic time has come from Isaiah. <clears throat> and so we've got a challenge right off the bat, but, but it's not, you know, he could have finished that with a corollary that says, but it's not the kingdom you think it's going to be. It's not going to look like that. It's not going to look like that at all. You're expecting an earthly king, which would bring in the sort of the Davidic reign of Messiah, that then all eyes would be turned towards Jerusalem and, and all people would flock to Jerusalem for this messianic age and the, the temple it will be restored to all its former glory and, and will own it. And they're still looking for that same thing today. There's a great hubbub always around the potential for finding a red heifer to begin the sacrificial system again, this perfect red heifer that they're waiting for that would signify and signal that the age has come and, and all things are going to be restored. And, and so you can see that same sort of idea. Even though they have the temple during this period, they're not going to have it much longer, frankly, and they don't have it in the same way that they expect to have it which is to say that they're not under Roman rule in their own land. And so Jesus makes the proclamation that the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, that's a powerful proclamation because what he's saying is, is that everything you've been waiting for is about to come true, about to be fulfilled. And then, you know, as we look on down the line with this thing, we get on to Palm Sunday, and it certainly looks like it, right? When Jesus comes in triumphantly on, on a donkey... This peaceful rule, peaceful takeover, in contrast to, you know, the way takeovers normally happen in France and, um, you know, back in the 18th century and, and all the, it's usually violence is what that means. And so Jesus here is announcing the coming of the kingdom in himself. And then he doesn't do the things that they expect that king and commander to do. He doesn't bring forward an insurrection. He doesn't bring forward a fighting force like the Maccabees even. He, he just does stuff and teaches. And, and it does, it, it's gathering people 
but it, it's not gathering people in the way that people wanted to where they would be in charge in the land again, and the land could be restored to the glory that was intended for it. And then he, we have to remember that that's the kingdom that he's calling us to. He's not calling us to the violent overthrow of any other kingdom. He's calling us to the peaceful proclamation of the kingdom of God. And we do that in, in word and deed. And we begin to show what that kingdom looks like, what the contours of that kingdom look like. And it doesn't look like violence. It doesn't look like all the things that, that people sometimes just kind of get caught up in and think about. And so they, we, we want it to be that way, but it, that's not trusting him. And it's not showing the world the peaceful kingdom that God intended. And it's the peaceful kingdom that, that Isaiah talks about because he talks, remember, about the relationship between men and beast. The child will play over the whole of the adder, the lion and the lamb together, all those kinds of things. It's a totally different thought. It's a peaceful kingdom beating your um, swords into plowshares. And so we've got to keep our minds and our eyes looking forward and, and proclaiming the kingdom in ways that, that show people exactly what that does look like for people to be submitted to the rule and reign of God because the kingdom's here now. It's here in the, in the form of the church, hopefully. But, it, but it's established first in us as human beings through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and then bringing us together in community and being told exactly what Jesus said, be fruitful and multiply, right? Go and make disciples. Teach other people to be exactly like I've taught you to be. It's, it's the same commandment that was given to Noah, the same commandment that was given to Adam and Eve. But it's the spread of God's kingdom that we're called to. And so, so here Jesus has to be disciplined, as we're going to see in the Hebrews lessons this week, about disciplining a child. Moses is even going to talk about it in the Deuteronomy lessons, about the importance of that discipline. And so it begins right here with, you know, you get this high thing that happens, and then the Spirit says, no, let's go out in the wilderness and be tempted by Satan. We've got to be tested and tried in order to be prepared to live this life for Christ. And in that First Peter lesson, it's First Peter three eighteen to twenty two. It, it it's talking about that very thing. And and I, you know, I've got a good friend who was here this week, and she said, John, you're always talking about suffering. You know, um, it, yes, because that's what we need to be prepared to do. It's what Jesus prepared His people to do. It's what Jesus Himself did. And this lesson begins with Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And I'm sure you remember that whole idea of the the spirits that had been put in prison for their disobedience in the days of Noah. That's not um, just Peter making some odd statements. No, that's actually from the book of Enoch. And so that's what he's taken is from the first book of Enoch. And he's talking about those particular spirits that were put in prison and they've been held there. And so what he's saying is, is that Jesus, after his resurrection, went and preached to the ones that are in Sheol, which is the place of the dead. It's not hell. It's the place of the dead. And so he's preaching the gospel 
to those who, who were there before. And that helps you to understand why he would do that. Those specific ones, those in the days of Noah, are the ones that Peter says he went and preached to. And there's a, there's, I, I can give you a little bit of an explanation for something out of that. When, if you talk to, if you read Jewish literature and you look for you know, how great Noah is, if you, if you just read the New Testament or read the Old Testament, Noah doesn't come up a whole lot. And the way they look at Noah is that, yeah, he was okay. He was a righteous man for his times. But beyond that, they don't have much good to say about him. They say that, that the others were better because they preached the gospel. They brought others with them, not just their own family. And so they kind of look askance at Noah and, and say that he really didn't do what we kind of try and say that he did, which is to try and save everybody else. Um because they just sort of say, nope, he just saved himself. That's all he did. He kept the word to himself. He didn't really make an effort to do anything. And so, you know, you can initially say, well, they got it wrong. But here, what does Peter say? Peter says that Jesus went after the resurrection and preached to one specific group of people, the people who didn't obey in the days of Noah. And so maybe it's because... Noah didn't preach the gospel. Noah didn't give them the same opportunity. Because he doesn't pick out any other period in history when he says that. I'm just, you know, I'm not speculating completely here. I'm just saying what, he, what Peter says right here. But it, this is taken from the book of Enoch, that, that idea of Jesus going to preach to the spirits in prison. And then he goes on to say, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So he says baptism saves us. Does it? Does just having water poured over us, dunked in it, whatever. Does that save us? What is baptism that he's talking about here? But it, it all has to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says. And then there's this confession of Jesus that he makes further after that, gone into heaven, right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So he's come into his kingdom. So we've, we've passed through the waters of baptism but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're called to this life. It's a changed life. That's the point of baptism. The point of baptism is a demarcation between life and death. Because that's what we do in baptism. We have died with Him, and therefore we rise with Him out of the waters of baptism as a new creation. And so to the extent that it saves us, then there's evidence that we are a new creation. We're not the same old people we were before we went into the waters of baptism. And our expectation is, is that now we're brought into this new covenant that he didn't make with all flesh. This is a different covenant. This is a, a very specific kind of covenant. And it's based on what we term the scandal of particularity, and that is, is that there's only one way. It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ not some other way. There's only one way to the Father. That's exactly what Jesus said. There's no other way to the Father but through me. And so that's what Peter's saying is you have new life in Christ. And when you have that new life, you're in this different covenant, different from the one with Noah that was with all flesh. It's, it's, it's a covenant with God's redeemed people, His chosen people.
And so then we are to become those who then go out and proclaim that same gospel to the world. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in that gospel. And the colic for today is Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan. Come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weakness of each of us, let us each find you mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.